good morning, everybody. I want to make one quick announcement. March 3rd, 5.30 p.m. Guys, we're having a, a man night, we're calling it. We're going to have dinner. We're going to have a speaker. Pastor Scott Lee is going to be talking about leadership principles for every man. I hope you can make it. Please RSVP in the office so we know how much food to make. That will be Friday, March 3rd, 5.30 p.m. Hope you can make it. I saw this cartoon recently, and it brought back memories. A man is standing before the gates of heaven, presumably awaiting to get his entrance. And it says this, the man standing at the podium, you were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. <laughs> we've all known them. Unfortunately, at times we've probably been them. That person who by their life deems their faith something that makes them a bit of a, an overbearing jerk, perhaps judgmental and legalistic, or on the other hand, makes their faith almost completely irrelevant because they're just living the way the world is. And it makes you wonder and it makes the world around us wonder, does that faith make any difference at all? This is one of the most critical factors I had to consider for myself when thinking about becoming a pastor. Is I knew that when I did, people would not look at me the same way again after that. And it's something that still weighs on me to this day. Is that people are watching, they're looking. I was reminded of this again in an article I read this past week. The writer, he's a theology teacher. He was saying this to pastors, but frankly, it applies to us all. He said, if our te teaching is narrow and petty, we make God look narrow and petty. If our pastoral practice lacks understanding and compassion, we make God lack understanding and compassion. If we are legalistic, we make God legalistic. If we are tribal, nationalistic or racist, we make God look tribal, nationalistic, and racist. If we do things that befuddle common sense, we make God the enemy of common sense. And he closed with this. He said, crassly stated, when we do stupid things in our ministry, we make God look stupid. Now, you can replace that word ministry with a lot of things. You could put workplace, home, main street, Wherever your sphere is, actually, how we act and behave is a portrayal of our Lord as we, His people, are the embodiment of Him on earth. I think all of us know what that cartoon is talking about that I showed earlier. There's a world watching the choices that we make. What I want to talk about this morning then is, well, how can I make God look good? By my thoughts, my actions, how I portray myself to others, how do I make God look good? This was what was on the mind of Paul as he was writing a letter to Titus. And we're going to read again this morning from the book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, starting at Titus, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are not to be well-pleasing. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You may be seated. We're in the middle of a short series on the book of Titus leading up to Easter. And the message of Titus is really to talk to talk and walk to walk, to act out what you profess to believe. As you saw in this passage this morning, there's a lot of stuff to do. Titus was wanting to correct the bad teaching. Paul is instructing Titus, look, you have a job here on this island of Crete. I want you to fix this problem of false teaching. Here then is what I want you to teach the people. Last week we talked about those teachers, both truth teachers and false teachers, what they taught and how they lived, how we should respond to them. This morning I want us to talk about uh, three things. First, the work of believers. You saw it in that passage we just read. Man, is it a lot of commands to live out. And then the goal of believers. What is this work leading to? And then finally, how do I show faith by my life? Four ways to do that. So let's start this morning entering today's text, and we see a very direct address across a whole gamut of ages. And there in this passage, I believe we see the work of believers is to show godliness no matter your gender, your social status, or your age. Paul's being very specific, talking to different people in different stages of life, different genders, different places. And I want to look at that very first verse. Paul had just gotten done talking about the false teachers in the previous chapter, verses 10 through 16. He says here in verse 1, But as for you, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. Now he lays it out there in the beginning. He'll say something very similar down in verse 10, the why, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And here's that phrase again I mentioned last week, and I'm a fan of repetition. And you'll see it again, because Paul is saying this in essence, that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And what does that mean? Believing right, being taught right, leads to living right. That's why Paul is so uh, passionate. He, He knows how important it is for people to get down Right doctrine. And when you use the word doctrine, sometimes it's met with a yawn of familiarity. But see, Paul gets that this foundation has to be laid in the life of the believer. If they are going to proceed to act out what they believe, they have to believe rightly. Paul knows this. Your actions have to line up. Your behaviors have to line up with what you profess to believe. And Paul just explained what happens when you live out unsound doctrine. 
Now then he proceeds then to address five groups of people in this passage. Older men, older women, then younger women, younger men, and then bond servants. Some versions of the, the scriptures may call them slaves. He's going to address all five. He starts with these older men, and he wants them to show maturity. So there's a list, and we see it there starting in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, temperate. That is, level-headed, then dignified. I read one commentary that says, that means you don't act like a clown. And men, I think it's important when we get into our Older ages, we don't try to dress like we're in our 20s anymore, right? In other words, act your age. to be self-controlled or sensible. All these are marks of maturity. Now, in a pagan society like what you have in Crete, some men were praised for being heavy drinkers. It was almost like a, you know, like a college uh, a frat party. And Paul's saying mature men don't act, mature men of Christ don't act like a bunch of frat boys. And then he goes on at the end of verse 2, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. And this is a call to godliness. We see a, a picture of mature men committed to sound doctrine that would be sound in faith, that are committed to persevering, that's that steadfastness, but also not becoming grumpy. Now, don't tell on yourself. <laughs> and that would be this, that middle part, sound in love. They're committed to the welfare of other people. I, one man put it this way, the years ought to bring not an increasing intolerance, but an increasing tolerance and sympathy for the views and with the mistakes of others. This is a verse against becoming a grumpy old man. And I've, I've seen... We've got men at First Baptist who have done this so well. And um, I have seen men in our church act with the absolute patience of Job. I'll never forget one circumstance where there's a man in our church, a man I dearly love, talking to someone, not part of our church, but whom I know to be extremely difficult. And I remember coming up to him, and I, I just said, how do you do it? How do you do it? And he's humble. I'll never forget. He said, well, Chad, I'm just old. I'll never get him saying that. I'm just old. I thought, no, you're not just old. But what maturity. To get older and realize, you know what? That was me back in the day. Hard-headed, hot-headed, impatient. These are godly men that are humble, that, that love people. And then Paul turns his attention to the older ladies in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. He goes on to say, and train the young women. And the older women have a similar responsibility. Through uh, Specific traits are, are different as to how they're to live, their demeanor, their behavior, but they're to be acting in a reverent way, literally as though they are in a holy place. Two potential failings of these women here in Crete and could potentially be failings today would be nasty, nasty gossiping and addiction to too much wine. Again, alcohol was a big problem in Crete. 
And then their older women are given this responsibility to train younger women. And this word train, uh, it's related to the word self-control. And it carries a dimension beyond just that of giving them skills they didn't already have. It also contains within it a dimension of reminding them. They needed to be reminded of something. And what is that? This is very interesting. Look at the end of uh, verse 4. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now, why do you need trained to love the people in their household? And I think the word reminder perhaps works better in this case. And listen to this very carefully. This was interesting as I was digging into it. Reminded of what it means to love their husbands and children. And as one commentator stated it, a love that can be diminished by circumstances or lack of response from others. In other words, the older women need to remind the younger women to persevere in the face of anemic appreciation. Imagine a young mother caring for kids, caring for the family, doing everything it takes, perhaps even maybe on top of another job, feeling very underappreciated. And here the text saying, older ladies, you've been there. You know what that feels like. Encourage them. Remind them to persevere. And that loving their husbands and children doesn't always get appreciated nearly as much as it should. Vicki Kraft, in her book called Women Mentoring Women, she wrote, We have bought into the notion that older people have had their day of usefulness and ought to make way for the young, but the principle here in these verses is quite the opposite. She goes on to say, With age and experience come wisdom, and many older women have discovered secrets of godly living in relation to their husbands, children, and neighbors, and in the workplace that could save younger women a lot of unnecessary grief. And when the unavoidable trials come to the young woman, who better to guide her through than an older sister who has been through it before? Somehow the church must see that younger women have contact with older women. And you know, I've seen a lot of women in our church be extremely intentional about this. And I'm wondering how many marriages might be improved or even saved by older women stepping in and helping out, mentoring the younger women. Yeah, I remember my own mom in a moment, she would call it a moment of melancholy. I don't remember how this topic came up, but I remember she said, you know, Chad, one time she said, I was just standing there, and she said, I was just folding all these towels. She said, it was like I was just surrounded by pile after pile of towels. And I'm folding these things. She said, is this just all my life is now? I'm just towel folding. And I could certainly see how someone could get disillusioned and disenchanted with that. And men, let's do a better job of letting our wives know that they are appreciated. And I believe women are under a terrible amount of pressure these days. They've got to be a, a stellar employee outside the home as well as a superstar mom and a superstar wife. And they need encouragement and not criticism from older generations. Paul continues in verse 5. 
to be self-controlled, talking about the young women, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In addition to what young mothers are to be as lovers of their husband and children, they're to have these additional commands. They are to be self-controlled. Again, that's a theme throughout this. None of us are to just live any way we want to live. Pure, busy at home. That is to be uh, domestic, kind, subject to their husbands. And Paul is giving teaching to say that home has got to be given a high priority. And he sees that as missing on this island of Crete. So he places a huge emphasis on it. Why is that? Again, if you look at the previous chapter, he said that whole households were being misled and upset. And there was this idea, it was fascinating. I was reading about the idea of the modern Cretan woman. In other words, way back on the island of Crete, they had an idea of what the modern woman ought to look like. And there was an emphasis on the new modern woman even back in Crete. And she, and I quote, she had the freedom to pursue extramarital sexual liaisons and liberties normally only open to men, which would place marital fidelity and household management at risk. Thus, the household was the chief theater of Paul's campaign. That was, that was the modern Cretan woman. That she saw how the man was out philandering and said, you know what, I think I want to do some of that. And Paul's saying, look, there's an order to this that God has made. Even in the subjection to a husband, it is to say that in the case when a man and woman, a husband and wife, disagree on something, that the husband's decision is to be referred to. And if a husband is wise, he will listen to his wife. I've said before, some of the worst mistakes I've made in my life when I did not listen to my wife. And the husband assumes responsibility for the decision. Men have to live in a way that their wives hopefully would respect them. I was moved. I, this past week, uh, the, the youth were having what they call a tough questions night. And they can ask whatever tough question they want to. And one of the topics was what we're talking about this morning. Well, what is this thing about, uh, you know, women uh, submitting and, and wives submitting to their husbands? And uh, one of the young men, I was moved by this question. One of the young men asked this. How can I start living now so that my wife would see me as someone whom she could respect and follow? Wow, uh, what a great question. And God intends for marriage to be loving, intimate, and caring. Where, and and we're not where one person is lording power over another. There's this struggle now that's a result of the fall. And then attention shifts to the young men in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Encourage younger men likewise to be self-controlled. Showing yourself to be an example of good works in every way. And your teaching show integrity, dignity, and a sound message that cannot be criticized. And, and the age range for older men, women, it's, it's, it would have been about 40 year, years old and up at that time in that culture. The younger men would have been, and women would have been about 20 to 40 or maybe younger. And Paul is saying, teach the young men not to be impetuous, but to be restrained. And then notice in verse 7, Paul instructs Titus, 
you be an example to the younger men in how you live. And he stays on Titus, verses 7 and 8, through good works and, and sound teaching that can't be criticized. There's an emphasis here on what comes out of Titus's mouth. And likewise, that young men would be very careful about how they use their words. Paul didn't want any hot-headed arguments about foolish things. And like Jewish genealogies or whatever it may be. And it's important we be very careful how we speak, how we use our words. There was a rabbi that wrote a book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And he lectures throughout the country. He often asks audiences if they can go 24 hours without saying any unkind words about or to another person. Just 24 hours. He said, inevitably, a few say yes, but the majority just shout no. And he said, those who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. That if you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted to nicotine. He said, similarly, if you cannot go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you've lost control over your tongue. Someone said once, it's nice to talk with people who can make a point without impaling anyone on it. There's a final group Paul addresses, starting in verse 9. Slaves are to be, in this case, bond servants, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And he's to be pointed out that uh, slavery at, at Paul's time was different than what we would have considered slavery in the South. You could have been a bondservant or a slave willingly. If you were, you could be a professional, but if you had debt, you could willingly put yourself into this uh, kind of slavery to, to pay off that debt. So it could be advantageous at times. And Paul is saying that in this context of your employer-employee relationship, be subject to show respect to your employer. Don't get lippy with them. And in, and in many groups, when Christianity came in, it had a liberating effect on people. It had a liberating effect on women. had a liberating effect on bond servants. And it elevated groups to say that you are important and you have high value in God's eyes. Both slave and free, male and female are both loved, and that's true. But that didn't give someone the right to show disrespect to God's given order. And he said, don't pilfer. It was actually considered a good thing to steal in Crete, interestingly. Don't steal from your employer, time, or anything else. And in essence, Christians in our modern time, <coughs> excuse me, we should be the shining example of a good attitude towards our employers. We should have an impeccable work ethic. One man in his commentary said this. Where all around there is disrespect or indifference to those in authority, a Christian's respectful attitude and speech, backed up by a good performance, will demonstrate that God's message of salvation produces positive, visible results. This is an opportunity for witness that we must not miss. It's so important how we behave in the workplace as Christians. So Paul lays out these instructions on how believers are to behave, what they're to do. And then he gives goals 
What is the goal of the believers? And it's to show behavior that glorifies God, that make God, makes God look good. We see the first, and we see three ways in this passage. First in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Some versions say slandered or discredited. In other words, in this case, referencing these young Christian wives and mothers, that they would earn the respect of outsiders by how they act. So first of all, godly behavior shows the truth of God's word. When we live it out, it shows that we truly believe it. We adopt it. And Paul knew that for Christian women to step out of line in these matters he talks about, it's going to bring criticism on the gospel and then consequently on God himself. And then the second reason for this behavior is in verse 8. He says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, godly behavior silences the opposition. I hate it when Christians are called hypocrites. It's not always fair. But in any case, let's not give people reason to call us hypocrites by our behavior. In other words, silence this opposition. And then finally in verse 10, answering the questions of why slaves should respect manners, uh, their, their masters, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, it's when we have this kind of radical respect, oftentimes for people that don't deserve it. It shows the world we value what we value and the results of our salvation. In other words, God, godly behavior demonstrates the positive result of salvation. So then how do you show this behavior to the world? Just very quickly, a few takeaways. One is we live out faith and community. All of these actions, all of these uh, behaviors are to be done in how we treat each other. So it's lived out in community. And then secondly, that we are to value everyone. Man, woman, young, old, everyone, and we've seen this passage, everyone has a place in God's house with his people. And, and what relationships do you have where you can show this kind of love to others? And then third, prioritize home and family life. Prioritize home and family life. And it's easy to let marriage and kids slide down the important scale. And by the way, I, I don't think this is a prohibition for women to work outside the home. I don't think that's what... Uh, he's saying, I do think that there is a need for an agreement for husband and wife to, to agree on whether or not uh, both spouses should be working outside the home. But there is certainly a priority here. Make sure you're getting your time in at home. That home's not just a place to eat and sleep and pick up a change of clothes. And then finally, submit to others. In all these relationships and their stipulations and in the work of believers, there's this concept of mutual submission in biblical relationships. Among us, deferring to someone else. You know what? I think your idea is better. Let's go with that. Laying aside our quote-unquote rights and humbly serving each other and not always having to have it our way. So... Putting this all together, show others God's goodness by how you treat others every day. Show others the goodness of God by how you treat others every day. I've, it's interesting, I came across a story. This was uh, recorded in New Jersey, but these zookeepers in Copenhagen, Denmark, they put a human couple on display. 
right between the, like the, the baboons and the apes. They had a, a see-through cage. And in that, there was a living room. It had furniture, computer, television, stereo. Uh, it was all part of the display, kitchen, bedroom. Only the bathroom was excluded, thankfully. And unlike the neighbors who weren't allowed out, the two humans could actually leave the cage from time to time to go back to their house. But we would also do well to remember that people are watching us, that our lives are always on display. Like it says in Titus 2.7, in everything set, set them an example by doing what is good. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were the ultimate example. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would, with your help as the days go by, look more and more like you. (coughs) That we would live by the example that you've given us. That we would show people your love by how we love each other. Even to the point, God, that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves for another. God, help us to appreciate our wives. Help us to encourage younger generations of believers that are coming up. And we ask all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.